It's Saturday the 21st of September. I'm Georgina Godwin and this is Monocle's House View. Coming up, Israel's voters face the prospect of a third general election this year following yet another inconclusive result. But is there any appetite for one? Also ahead, my guests Mary Dejeski and Charles Hecker will be trying to make sense of a dramatic week at the UK's Supreme Court. No Prime Minister has abused his powers in the manner which we allege in at least the last 50 years. Plus, we'll be flicking through the day's front pages and the very best of the weekend supplements. All that coming up on Monocle's House View. Israel's voters must be feeling more than a little fed up with the country's leaders. They've been to the polls twice in the past six months and could do so again if Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his rival Benny Gantz don't agree to form a unity government in the wake of the country's latest inconclusive poll. Well, I'm joined in the studio by the journalist, columnist and former foreign correspondent Mary Dajewski and Charles Hecker, who's a senior partner at Control Risks. Welcome both to the programme. It's so nice to see you bright and early on this Saturday with our buns. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, we, we actually thought about perhaps doing this in Russian because you both speak Russian. <laughs> That's right. We could transport the studio very briefly to Moscow and we could give you a very quick lesson in conversational Russian. <laughs> and we'll say Dobry Dien just to say hello, good morning. Dobry Utra, Radio Slushitili. But in fact, there's not a lot happening in the Russian papers, so we're not even going to we're not even going to go there. We're going to go to Israel. Mary, a hung parliament is nothing new in Israel. I mean, there are dozens of parties, and the country's used to the to coalition. Is this current impasse representing a real problem for the country? Well, I think it does represent a real problem because. Really, this election was held because the last one didn't produce any sort of configuration that Benjamin Netanyahu, who is an absolute master of creating a coalition out of an incredible patchwork um, of a parliament, um, he's actually ended up worse than he was the first time around. And he's ended up worse because his party, Likud, actually has fewer seats in the new parliament than it did in the old one. So he's actually, it's the second party, um, not the first party. And he seems to have tried to conceal this by um, putting out an olive branch to Benny Gantz, um, whose party came, uh, actually has two more seats, I think, in the final count than his does. Um, But this actually, this makes it more problematical rather than less, because the, the party that is essentially, that could be potentially the kingmaker party of Avigdor Lieberman, um, he was the one who opted out of the coalition which precipitated the whole crisis in the first place and the first election. So he's hardly going to go back with Likud and create the mess that there was the first time around. Charles, you're nodding. Um, It's interesting to have learned in the course of flicking through some stories on the current predicament that not a single Israeli government has served its full four terms, uh, four years, a full term. And so 
this is in part a familiar situation for Israeli voters. Um, what this is not familiar for is who this is not familiar for is Benjamin Netanyahu, who has the additional impetus of staying out of jail in putting together um, a coalition. And so the first order of business for the current prime minister is to remain in government and put together not just a coalition, but a coalition that will vote him or grant him immunity from prosecution. Um, we expect up to four indictments coming down on the prime minister in October for corruption and the receipt of inappropriate gifts and for bending Israeli regulation in favor of a major Israeli company. And so whether or not this government serves out a full term, it's got to get together before, I would say about mid-October, um, in order for the prime minister to avoid becoming a mere civilian and subject to criminal prosecution. So Mary, who are we going to see eventually in charge? Well, this is a big question, and I honestly do not know, um, because if we don't see Netanyahu back in charge, then we're looking at a very messy end of an era, um, because to the extent that Israel, Israeli politics has been stable in recent years, it's because of Netanyahu's political skills. Um, and if he's no longer there, it's very hard to see how that political st stability, I'm not talking about social stability, but political stability, how that will actually continue without a, a, quite a, a period of quite... You know, over the last how many months since the first election, we're looking at period nearly six months that Israel has ha, has been in political limbo. And it's hard to see how that won't be continuing. Mm, absolutely. Um, and of course, Charles, there were all these uh, pre-election promises that Netanyahu made about annexing the West Bank. That's right. Um, Israeli coalition negotiations are typically long and they're typically hard and they usually involve abandoning a lot of the promises that you make during an election campaign. Um, there's the potential that Netanyahu may have to reach all the way over to the far left in Israel and hand out some choice ministerial appointments to make this coalition work. And that will mean abandoning quite a few of his promises. And as, as Mary points out, um, you know, the, the, the ground is sort of strewn with Netanyahu opponents, including Lieberman, who is sort of the, the kingmaker, but the person who brought this all on, um, the Israeli body politic um, for the time being. And so any of the promises, frankly, that any of the main contenders made in the course of the election are really um, on the verge of collapse. I mean, don't you think it's interesting just looking around the world at how completely divided we have become as, as nations? Uh, modern elections absolutely characterized by uncertainty. It's happened here in Britain. It's happened in Spain. I mean, has it just become too difficult to win an election outright? This is an excellent open question. And you wonder, is it the political system that is broke or breaking 
Is it the electorate that no longer really knows what to do? Is it the impact of polarization and the ability to coalesce around um, a single candidate? But you're right. Um, the UK will be back at the polls before the end of the year, most certainly. Um, Israel may have yet a third election. Spain is facing its fourth election. There's something in the process that's just not delivering a result. And I don't, I don't have the answer. I think there are more symptoms than, than um, actual cures. Mary, what do you think? I, I agree. I mean, I think that there is obviously a problem with the process that doesn't produce a result that represents sufficiently um, the people who've gone out to vote under the promise of one person, one vote. Um, and I think I've heard it said recently that you can look across, especially at continental Europe, um, with, who mostly have quite proportional systems of voting, um, that their process of then producing a government and a, and a parliament out of that, generally, although it can be, it, it can take a long time, um, it can actually be more successful and more representative, and you will have less of this extreme cleavage of two sides at each other's throats than you have in, say, the United States or the UK, where you've got two sides, um, which uh, which are. In, in the legislature um, and the government finds it very difficult to, to, to handle and the voters feel that they're not represented. I think it's marginally more successful in the very proportional systems that you have in continental, most of continental Europe. Mm. Well, let's look at the crisis involving the UK right now. I mean, the country's top legal minds have been battling it out at the Supreme Court all week in an attempt to decide whether the decision to suspend the UK's parliament was illegal or not. Now, of course, this comes as Boris Johnson's government continues to hold meetings with EU negotiators over Brexit. So, uh, Mary, uh, neither of you want to comment on this. Who wants to handle this one first? <laughs> Mary, let's start with the latest shenanigans at the Supreme Court. Now, you've been covering Westminster for a long time. What have you made of this? I mean, this, these are, this is unprecedented, isn't it? It is absolutely unprecedented. And I think it's something that the Supreme Court, when it was created, um, I think under Tony Blair's sort of constitutional reforms as they were then, which included devolution. The Supreme Court can never have imagined that it would be considering a case like this, which is in very many ways, it's much more like um, an American um, case of having a Supreme Court which is considered one, one arm of a system of checks and balances where you have the judiciary, you have the legislature, you have the executive, um, and these are balanced. And my view is that this is actually a problem for the UK because the UK now has a hybrid system. We've got a system of devolution which is not a, not a federation we have the system of a Supreme Court, which was taken essentially out of the sovereign, quote, parliament um, as a check and balance, which it has really no constitutional basis for. So the idea that you've got a Supreme Court 
which early next week, they say, is going to pronounce on whether the Prime Minister um, made a legitimate decision, whether, whether it was lawful for him to prorogue, I suspend Parliament for as long as, um, as he did, which I think is between five and seven weeks, depending how you count it, um, whether, this was, whether this was an OK thing for him to do, um, and if it wasn't, what should happen then? But I, I mean, I have a whole problem with this, as indeed the, um, the, 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 the council for the government does, which is that I'm not convinced that um, the Supreme Court, the judiciary, should be in, intervening in what seems to me an entirely political decision that the prerogative of the prime minister is that he can prorogue parliament, he can advise... the the way it's done formally is that it's done by the Queen on the advice of the Prime Minister. And I think to involve the judiciary in this um, presents a big problem and a big change in the constitutional balance such as it is in the UK. And this is, I mean, this is one of the big questions that the court has to consider. Even if we can, it can be proven that the Prime Minister lied to the Queen and therefore uh, that was why she rubber-stamped the decision? Um, it's, you'll never be able to prove that the Prime Minister lied to the Queen. We had an example earlier this week of what happens when, in this case, a former Prime Minister reveals some of the content of his conversations with the Queen, and that's what David, David Cameron did uh, in promoting his memoirs. He talked about his conversations or alluded to talking via AIDS and talking via sort of, you know, carrier pigeons um, between number 10 and Buckingham Palace, and he divulged a little bit about how those talks went. And then we had this sort of masterful statement of, of understatement, rather, from the palace saying that it's caused certain consternation, or I don't remember exactly the words, but that was the way of the palace saying that it was absolutely incandescent with rage that a prime minister should talk about their conversations, the meetings with the Queen. And so we won't know what happened there. Um, that's not even the most important part. As Mary points out, this is about the primacy of Parliament and whether the Prime Minister, who sits in Parliament but is part of this separate but not separate executive, um, where the balance in those two positions lie. Um, it's been very interesting having grown up in a system with a written constitution and having heard an awful lot of talk about the unwritten British constitution, which is inaccurate in its phrasing. I mean, there are pieces written down. They're just sort of written down all over the place and they're, and they're separate. Um, but in the United States, you can walk into um, the National Archives in Washington and you can just about touch the written constitution. It's all in one place, it's all in one document, and it's behind a very, very thick pane of glass in the center of Washington, D.C. The interesting thing is, and this is about the injection of politics into the process, having a resolutely codified constitution 
doesn't really help either <laughs> when the process becomes as politicized as it is here and as we're all familiar with some of the challenges to the Constitution and as political as they are also in the United States. Well, let's, I'm, I'm not sure whether it, whether it doesn't help, actually, because I am quite an advocate of a written constitution for the UK, and I think that may be one of the things that comes out of this grand mess. Um, but I would draw a contrast between what's happening here and the chaos of nobody really knows what's going to happen next with what happened in 2000 with the tide election in the in the United States because I was Washington correspondent then and although it was it was a gigantic constitutional problem nonetheless what had to be done as the next stage and the next stage and the next stage of everything was actually set down um, quite predictably in the constitution and those of us who were covering it um, we had little copies of the constitution you know it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a gigantic document we had small copies of the constitution I was carrying one round in my handbag leafing through trying to find out what would happen next and it went absolutely according to the constitution mm, mm. so what about a deal then I mean both the EU and Britain say that they are getting closer to a deal. Is that true, Charles? I mean, we've no way of knowing, again, as you say. But. You know, we hear all of these, ta- all of this talk about how the mood music is improving and how sounds coming out of Brussels or sounds coming out of Westminster are more positive. The, the ode to joy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that people are now, you know, as, as far as the mood music, I, I think people need to retune their radios. They need to retune it to Monocle 24, of course. Um, and that actually, if you take a cold, hard look at where the EU stands and where the UK stands, there's been absolutely no change. Mary? Well, um, I'm probably quite a lone voice in saying that I do think that Boris Johnson wants, um, as well as needs, um, some sort of deal. Um, And I think he may very well get one. Um, But I've been wrong on this score every time now since the um, since the original date set by Theresa May so nobody should set any store by this um, but I do think the obvious solution um, at least on the Irish question is staring everybody in the face um, which is that there will have to be a customs border down the Irish Sea um, and the DUP the Irish the Northern Irish Protestant Party, The Unionists are not happy about this because they see this as a first stage of separating Northern Ireland off from the UK and making it closer, maybe facilitating eventually um, unification of Ireland. Um, But I think that that is really what's got to happen. And in a sense, the government has already taken half a step towards it by putting out the idea that the agriculture and food sector could indeed be part of a, um, a separate um, customs arrangement um, with the EU and have a single area with the Republic of Ireland. And I think that they're going to have to go a bit further with that. But once they have gone further, then I think a deal is not impossible. That was one of the reasons why I partially agreed with you, Mary, and, 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 and it was this notion of, of a partial uh, removal of, of the backstop for agricultural goods or, you know, the phytosanitary <laughs> rule. And once I got back from the dictionary, understanding what phytosanitary means. But then there was this fantastic moment in Brussels 
where Boris Johnson was there, and either it was with Stephen Barclay or with one of his other negotiators, and Jean-Claude Juncker looked at him and said, a partial border for agriculture is not going to work. And Johnson turned to his aides and said, I thought you told me that this was going to work. And so that's what makes me think that we're sort of back to square one. I agree with you, though, that there has been a bit of a sea change and, and, and that the prime minister does want a deal, um, but he may run out of time. Um, and the practicality, you know, the wanting the deal, in fact, the idea that he's running out of time is reflected in that the backstop of the backstop is to let us out on October 31st with a request to Brussels to say, well, let us work it out the rest of, during the transition period. So that it, it means that he does want a deal, but he may not get it before October 31st. And of course, if he does get a deal, it would still have to be ratified by Parliament and they're currently on a rather long enforced break. (laughs) Uh, um, We'll come back uh, right after this. Download the free Monocle 24 app today to tune in wherever in the world you happen to be. Whether you're catching up on the news on your daily commute, enjoying a little cultural nourishment during your morning run, or seeking some recipe inspiration around the kitchen table, the Monocle 24 app allows you to tune in live or download your favourite shows to enjoy later. Get started by downloading the Monocle 24 app today. Monocle 24, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're listening to Monocle's House View here with me, Georgina Godwin. My guests are Charles Hecker and Mary Dejewski. Now, let's have a look at today's newspapers. Now, we've been talking about this unprecedented crisis in British politics, but it's not just the Conservatives, it's the Labour Party too, as the Times has more on. Charles. <laughs> so if you thought the Conservative Party was leading the contest of, of, of devouring its own, um, stay tuned because the Labour Party is planning on doing the exact same thing. Um, there has been heated discussion uh, about eliminating the position of deputy party leader. But what that's really all about is about eliminating Tom Watson, um, who is a voice of opposition within the Labour Party to Jeremy Corbyn and someone who has also had, um, I think it's characterized in the papers as a rather spectacular falling out with Len McCluskey, um, the head of the union that is the largest donor to the Labour Party. They want rid of that kind of high-ranking opposition um, in the Labour Party, and so they're going to essentially airbrush, and I'm using that phrase with Mary intentionally for its Stalinist overtones, <laughs> they're going to, uh, they're going to um, airbrush that position out of, out of the books, and with it they hope Tom Watson. Mary. I think one of the um, one of the interesting things, I mean, it should be pointed out that the story is most prominent um, in the London Times, um, which, of course, is no friend whatsoever to the Labour Party and is likely to highlight all its difficulties. That said, um, its difficulties are not easy for anybody to um, to play down. Um, plus, they play into the current um, the, 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 the current um, split in 
in UK politics. Um, and we're looking at a week of Labour politics dom dominating the headlines because it's the Labour Party conference this week, mm. starting this weekend. Um, and I think there are two other people who, who, whose names and pictures um, feature in the, in the papers today in the Labour Party. One of them is Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornbury and another is Harriet Harman. Um, both of them sort of would be regarded as centrist, um, probably um, sympathetic um, to Europe, um, more so far than um, Jeremy Corbyn and his wing of the party. Um, so we're looking at really have, seeing the split in the Labour Party, which is really a mirror image of the split in the Tory party, um, being played out in all the headlines through the rest of the next few days. Mm. And of course, the party conferences do give an opportunity for the public to interact with politicians. And The Guardian has a piece on this. Mary? Yes, the um, interaction with the with the um, with the general public is um, not the happiest of um, opportunities, you might say. Um, in especially now, but you can look back and you can say that um, there are not that many politicians um, who currently have the degree of popular touch that you need um, to engage with a public that is increasingly, I would say, stroppy um, and suspicious of politicians and prepared to, maybe because of social media, prepared to say what they think. Um, so we've got, um, we've got comments, we, we've seen this this week with um, Boris Johnson con confronting one of his critics in a hospital um, and and um, as you say, The Guardian has um, has a whole discussion about this. It's interesting. You see American politicians traveling in public with bodyguards and security details to sort of keep a safe distance from the public. And that has traditionally not been the case in the UK and not even in London. Um, and I recall on a number of occasions, I mean, this happens to everyone. You can be standing on a platform in the tube next to a high profile politician and, and there they are. Um, or you can see the mayor in a restaurant and, and there he is. And and nobody's bothering them and nobody's coming up to them and there's no need for security. I saw Michael Gove in a newsagent on Marlebin High Street a while ago. People go in, people go out, they go about their business and nobody bothers them. That's changing. Um, there is a more confrontational attitude between the public and its politicians and I think that's because of the pitched nature of the issues that we're dealing with. Um, although Mary points out accurately that that recent prime ministers and other high-profile political figures have been pretty bad at retail politics. Mm -hmm. um, there was Gordon Brown in the back of the car with the live mic um, making a remark about, oh, that petty, bigoted woman um, when he was confronted by somebody with a differing opinion. Theresa May was a dreadful um, retail politician. Um, and how many people have been pelted with eggs um, and, and, and things like that. So maybe bring on the security details. Um, I just wanted to, to go back for one second to this notion of who may get thrown out of the Labour Party because we all saw this blistering speech given in Parliament by Jess Phillips um, when she looked 
looked at her members opposite and said, how can you sit there while this all happens? It's as if the Labour Party were to throw out somebody like Harriet Harman. And inside the Times, that's exactly what's being discussed. Um, Tom Watson may go, and the next one on the block will be Harriet Harman, and it'll be interesting to see what Jess Phillips says. Mm, Absolutely, and what the future indeed of the party is. Now, talking about public interaction uh, with politics, we've seen huge public interaction all over the world, much more uh, reported in the foreign uh, papers, not so much the British ones. And of course, this was the huge climate activism protests worldwide uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, Mary, it's on the front page of The Guardian, but mostly we're seeing it in the the German papers, in the French papers and so on. Yes, and it also strikes me that there is a slightly different emphasis as between the British papers and the continental papers. Um, The British papers, it's largely a picture story and it's largely a protest story. Um, It's the people versus the politicians. Um, Whereas when you look at the German papers in particular, it's about um, the the, the ministers and Chancellor Merkel used the day as an opportunity to present what might be new policies or to present, uh, to to, um, foreshadow some of the things they might be doing to tackle climate change. Um, And I haven't seen that sort of thing in in, in Britain. It's been treated as essentially the the school kids protest. Mm. Um, Over there, it's part of the whole political fabric and it's part of something that the politicians um, are, see as an opportunity for them as well. Uh, Mary, absolutely. And of course, we've got the UN uh, conference coming up this week, so we'll be watching this story very, very carefully. Mary Dijewski, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to, to Charles Hecker. And uh, coming up a little bit later on today, of course, lots of great music uh, and we'll be re- revisiting some of the top stories uh, of the day. And And uh, many thanks to our supervising producer, Rhys James, our researcher, Will Higginbotham, and our studio manager today was Max Bauer. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.